I would encourage you to grab your Bible, and uh, you may want to make your way over to Matthew chapter 18. We'll be there um, in a number of minutes. It's going to take a little bit for us to get to that. Uh, I want to give you a heads up. Those of you who uh, enjoy taking notes, we're going to get to that. Um, but don't judge how long the teaching is going to go today before you get to the first blank, okay? Uh, it's going to be towards the end. Uh, there is just two key thoughts that I believe God wants us to jot down on what we can do on the topic he has for us today. But before we dive into that, we've been in a series entitled Stuck. Everybody gets stuck, but nobody has to stay stuck. I don't know if the last couple of weeks of this image of being stuck has resonated with you, but my guess is you don't have to think very hard until you can remember or imagine a time when you were stuck. It may be physically, emotionally, spiritually, financially. I'm not sure what it is. I, I don't have to think very hard. I, I'm bombarded with a number of, of those examples. I remember I was helping a friend move some furniture in Columbus, Ohio, and he had a house that was uh, made a long time ago, I guess when people were short or something, I don't know, because in his basement, uh, a six-foot-tall person does not fit in that basement. And it was annoyingly short, not like so short that it was a crawl space, but like five and a half feet tall, just enough for me to have to kind of do this all the time. And and Jim wanted to move his couch into the basement for storage because he didn't need it in the living room anymore. And so uh, being the friend that I was or the friend he was that told me I was going to go down the steps first, uh, I'm carrying the couch, going down the steps first, down this narrow little hallway to this basement that is super short. And Jim is up top wanting to hurry up and get the job done. And so we're making our way through, and and I'm beginning to see that the hall is getting smaller and smaller, and the couch is staying the same size. I'm not the brightest guy, but it it clicks in my mind. This doesn't appear to be able to work. But Jim says, if we just go fast enough, we can push it through. And so he starts ramming and pushing this couch down the steps, and as you guessed, it got wedged about two feet high off the ground in that stairwell, and I was stuck. I'm on the other side of this couch, trapped in this short basement, and I never knew I could get claustrophobic in such a big space, but I wanted out. I tried to crawl underneath, and I am not created of the size that would fit underneath. I tried to crawl over, the same problem, and I was stuck. My friend Jim thought this was so fun, uh, he decided to go get lunch and have a break and then come back and rescue me later. I think of moments like that when I think about being stuck... You can't do anything to get out, and and, and it's just a hopeless feeling. When we're looking at what God wants to say to us in this series of teaching, it's not just a slogan or a phrase. Every single one of us gets stuck. But we don't have to stay stuck. We may not be able to get unstuck in our own strength or effort, but God wants to allow his truth to give us freedom from what is holding us back. As you look at your handout there, there's a number of blanks filled in. I'm going to go through this pretty quick, and and uh, this is, by way of review, a, a highlight of where God has taken us the last couple weeks. In our first week, we talked about how it's a family thing. Looking at Matthew 15, 1 through 9, we saw that the first thing we've got to catch to get unstuck is to recognize man's traditions or man's habits, man's patterns of living Compared to or verse God's law, God's word, God's truth. Anytime we take our habit of living, our pattern of living, our tradition, make what equal to or greater than God's law, his truth, his word, we will get stuck every time. 
It doesn't matter how much you keep God's law, if you bring your own pattern of living, your own preferences, and you put them on the same level of importance, greater to or equal to God's law, you get stuck. We saw in that first week that we had to move to decide what's going to drive us. How are we going to make our decisions? How are we going to uh, allow our, our course to be charted in life? What is going to drive what you do? Is it God's law, his word, his truth? Or is it God's law plus my favorite way of living? Is it God's law plus my family traditions? What is going to drive you? Finally, that day, we had to identify the negative traditions, the habits, the patterns, and break with them. If you want to get unstuck, you can't stay in that same pattern. Now, not every tradition or habit or pattern is wrong, but when we make even good ones equal to or greater than God's truth, we get stuck. Our second week, last week, we uh, looked at how we got to get past the blame game. We can't just blame mom and dad for handing us a set of traditions or patterns of living. We are responsible for every choice that we make. We looked at little King Josiah at eight years of age, not only got unstuck himself, but helped his nation get unstuck. And he first had to choose a different role model. His dad was not living a life that he could pattern himself after and be pleasing to God. So he had to find someone else. And he went back and he, he heard and, and saw the lineage of King David and said, I'm going to model my life after King David. He chose a different role model. For some of us to get unstuck, we need to look at who we are pattering our life after. Then Josiah purged the kingdom of all idols, of all false hope, and said, I'm not going to just put it in storage. I'm not going to just set it aside. I'm going to burn it. I'm going to cut it up to pieces. I'm going to smash it. God called Josiah to purge his world. God calls us to purge our life of anything that is not taking us closer to him. And finally, Josiah established scripture as the standard. He was the king. What he thought, what he said, literally became law. He could have said, I will read scripture, and then what I say will be law, and and so that will be good. But he said, no, I'm not going to let the kingdom be ruled by my emotions, by my personality, by my preferences. Scripture is going to be the standard. As we continue on this morning, we need to recognize that This has not been a formula of how to get unstuck. Do these three things and then you're unstuck. But this is a process. This is a way to live life that not only gets us unstuck, but keeps us from getting stuck. As we look at this last week of this series, I want to share with you a message entitled, Last but not least, Forgiveness. I had uh, uh, friends four or five years ago who were celebrating their 45th wedding anniversary. I remember asking uh, this man, I said, tell me the secret to your marriage lasting 45 years. They looked pretty happy. I mean, they hadn't like, you know, gone after each other or anything or beat each other up. I mean, they seemed to be pretty happy. I said, what's the secret to your marriage? And without skipping a beat, he said, I had to ask forgiveness a lot. And he said, and I had to extend forgiveness a lot. It's no big secret, he said, forgiveness was the key to longevity in our marriage. You know, that's a good word for us. 
not just in our marriage relationships, but any of our relationships, forgiveness is a key to allowing them to last, to help us not get stuck in pitfalls in our relationships. I think there's some of us in this room today that, that still feel stuck. Maybe you feel stuck in your job. The fact of the matter is that you're not so much stuck in a bad job, you're stuck in relationships with people that you work with, and those relationships may have gone sideways. You're angry, you're mad at your boss because he did not appreciate you, or he did not give you that promotion, or he misspoke about what you said. Now your conclusion is that you're in a bad job, and you're stuck in a bad job, when most likely you're just stuck in the relationships with the people at work. We've heard this said many times, but it bears repeating again. When we don't forgive, we keep ourselves from healing. When we think we are really giving it to somebody, we're going to stick it to them, we're going to make them pay by not forgiving them, we are the ones who suffer far more than they suffer. Your unforgiveness hurts you first. And then it hurts all kinds of people around you, many of whom are not connected to that situation. It's kind of like if you would come up to me this morning and you would come up and hit me on the right shoulder and say, Hey, Pastor Brady, how you doing? And I'd say, Good, how are you? And I would respond in, in a fine way. But just imagine that I had a gash or a cut on my left shoulder that had been stitched up. Underneath my shirt there was a bandage and stitching. And, and then underneath my coat you couldn't even tell it was there. If you came up to me and you slapped me on my left shoulder and said, Hey, Brady, you couldn't even finish. I would let out a war hoop because I'm a wimp. And I'd say, Stop! Don't hit me there! What are you doing, dummy? That hurts! You know, it's a good picture of how many people live their life. Underneath the surface, there are wounds that have not healed. And all you're doing is just bumping into them. And they respond with an overflowing gush of pain and hurt and almost feels like wrath have you ever bumped into somebody like that i mean you weren't intending to say anything wrong but boy whatever you did just set them off it's amazing the level of hurt and pain that people walk around with that we don't know this is a sidebar this is good to remember there are people in your circle of influence who live every single day with tremendous physical pain. Think about how you respond when you're in physical pain. Maybe you're good at tolerating pain, but most of us, our response is a little bit less than stellar when we're hurting pretty bad. And this can help us give grace to one another. But when we have unforgiveness in our heart and we're holding a grudge against somebody else, it is a wound underneath the surface that is not healing, it's not scabbing over. And when someone brushes up and bumps on that area of your life, no doubt you respond in a way that brings hurt and pain to them and they may have nothing to do with the situation. Now my shoulder is fine. Someone asked me after first service, I don't have a cut, there's no stitches, and I guess you can hit me in the shoulder if you want to. But we've got... All kinds of wounds that are very real. They're not pretend. They are there and unforgiveness keeps them open and festering. That's how a lot of our relationships are. I think that even affects our marriages at some deep level. 
In some ways, it's not really marriage problems that we have. We have problems ourselves that we have brought into our marriage that are possibly not healed yet. It disrupts the marriage when how you are still dealing with things that have hurt you from your childhood, things that have hurt you from uh, your teenage years or your college years, or things that someone else did that wasn't your spouse, but you begin to take out your pain and hurt on them as you're in a close proximity relationship like a marriage covenant. Uh, All of us have some marriage problems, those who are married. I'm not trying to say that you shouldn't have any problems. I have marriage problems here today. I have a marriage problem. I leave the toilet seat up, in, in the, all the way up. And you say, well, that's not a problem. Well, talk to my wife. She'll tell you how that is a problem. And once you understand how it's a problem, talk to me, because I, apparently I need to learn how this is a problem too. And, and, and I have marriage problems. My wife takes the toothpaste and squeezes it from the middle. If you think that's not a problem, talk to me. I'll tell you how it's supposed to be done. You don't have to do it that way. I'm not talking about these kind of problems. These are personality differences. These are preferences. This is just part of doing life together. There are some things of of, of male perspective and female perspective that, that provides friction. And in the wrong scenario, that can begin uncomfortable, but it can also bring traction. And So I'm not saying that when we have forgiveness, there's no disagreements in life. But what I'm saying is quite possibly what you think is a major rift in the marriage may be some un attended wound in your own life that you're responding so strongly to your spouse out of that wound that's never had healing i'm not saying every time i'm not trying to belittle whatever crisis you may be walking through in your marriage but often there is something that has not been dealt with a wound that you are carrying that is causing you to respond one way or another that disrupts that marriage when we look at Not only bumping into our spouse and being a victim of their pain. That happens with all kinds of people around us. There's a couple things I want to share with you that's not in your outline. But uh, just think with me of these items on forgiveness. Forgiveness is the first steps to healing and the first steps to reconciliation. That's where we start. That's where healing happens when we forgive. But forgiveness is counterintuitive. In other words, when we say, well, forgive them for what they've done to you, the inside we say, are you kidding me? Do you know what they have done? Do you know the history here? Do you know the backstory? Have you lived with this person? Have you experienced what I've experienced? Just forgive them? Forget it. You have no idea what I have gone through. I don't know what you've gone through, and if I had time to hear your story, I'm confident it would break my heart. But it's true for all of us that forgiveness is counterintuitive. It doesn't always make perfect sense to us. We begin to think, you hurt me. You took something from me. You abused me. You wounded me. You took my innocence. You took my trust. You took my confidence. So I'm going to give you something all right, but it's not going to be forgiveness. It's something else. We naturally want to repay evil with evil. But God says that forgiveness must be freely given. Sometimes we say, well, I'll forgive, but they need to come to me first. I need to see some true repentance in their life before I forgive them. I won't forgive them until they start changing things in their life. Then I'll forgive them. Friend, I'm not trying to be insensitive, but that is dead wrong. That is dead wrong. That is not the pattern we find in Scripture of what forgiveness should be. 
In fact, that person may never do the things that you hope that they do. And you, by not forgiving them, are giving them power to hurt you over and over and over again. Think about Jesus' words on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Think about that for a minute. Who's he speaking to? The people who chanted, crucify him. The people who took Jesus to the leaders and said, we want him to be put to death. The people who there were following orders, but still took the nails and the hammer and began to pound them through his hands and his feet. And Jesus cries out and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, what did this mean for them? These people hadn't repented. They hadn't come to accept Jesus as their Savior. Did they just get off the hook? Is this a free pass in Scripture and, and they're all fine because Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they need to do. Friend, it has very little to do with what it means for them. It has everything to do with what it says about him. Jesus was not going to give his life on the cross with bitterness in his heart, with a given spirit in his heart. He wasn't going to have malice towards anyone. He quickly said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. He freely and quickly gave forgiveness. Something inside of all of us wants to pay people back. We want to see them get what's coming to them. And we have to admit, there's a little bit of satisfaction when that happens. To deny that would not be telling the truth. But that little bit of satisfaction, when you see somebody get what they deserve, when that passes, you are still left with your brokenness and your pain and your hurt, and it does nothing to bring healing to the wound that you have encountered. As well-seasoned church attenders, we may not be so brash to say that we won't forgive somebody, but we say, well... I'll pray for them and forgive them, but I'm eagerly awaiting God to pour out justice on their head. And our prayer time becomes more like some kind of voodoo curse that we hope would happen to them. It's just a mask for a get-even spirit. It's just some kind of covering for carnality and envy and bitterness. I want to make a note this morning. I don't want anybody to to be confused. There is a huge difference between forgiveness and trust. This is a truth for somebody why God gave you a divine appointment today. You need to hear this. Forgiveness and trust are not the same thing. They're very, very different. We are to forgive freely. Forgiveness comes freely and quickly, but trust needs to be earned. God is not calling us to be doormats, that, that someone does something to hurt you and, and, and just Scripture's requiring you to, to lay down and just be a doormat again and again and again and again and again and again. No. Trust is to be earned. When someone has burned your trust, it's okay to be cautious in giving that trust out again, but holding back and not forgiving them only is going to hurt you in the end. Some of us, there's great freedom in that. You may have thought that you have struggled with forgiveness, and really what you have struggled with is the concept of just trusting very recklessly. God may want to encourage you today and say, forgiveness you have and can give. Trust, you need some help to make sure that it's being earned in an appropriate way. Others, we hide behind this and we 
say, because I can't trust them, there's no way I'll forgive them. And we still allow the wounds of that scar that's not healed over to cause pain for us and everybody around us. As long as you refuse to forgive, you're refusing to be healed. As long as you refuse to be healed, there are consequences for that choice. You stay stuck. It halts you in many areas of your life. Well, enough of my thoughts. Let's look at Matthew 18, verse 21 through 25 together. As you turn to Matthew 18, let me set the scene. Jesus here has just finished talking about how to deal with someone who has offended you. And then Peter, I love Peter in Scripture, he asks and says the things that I'm thinking and that I would do. He he must have been listening and must have remembered a number of people who have offended him. And, And so he asks this question. Verse 21, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Here's Peter's assumption. I'm doing this person a favor who has wronged me. He's asking, how many times do I have to be the good guy in this scenario? He's basically saying, I'm willing to forgive, but, but how long should that go on? He sees forgiveness as benefiting the one who has offended him, and he sees that it's exclusively a benefit for the offender. No help to him. And Jesus is saying something completely different. Look at verse 22. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. This is also translated 70 times, seven times. He's basically saying, you don't ever stop. Then Jesus begins to move into a story that he tells all those who are listening. You read in your mind, as I read out loud, verse 23 through 35. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had were to be sold to repay the debt. Verse 26 The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. But when that very same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and told their master everything that had happened. Verse 32, then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servants just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. Jesus says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. This just doesn't seem right. We feel, God, God, you should be on my side here. But in scripture, we are more like the wicked servant who's been forgiven of great debt And yet we have trouble forgiving those who have wronged us. You know how Jesus defines forgiveness? Here he defines it in the story as canceling the debt. We are to make a conscious decision 
to look at the things that are owed to us and to cancel that debt. In essence, to say, they don't owe me anything anymore. Look at verse 34. It's not the one who offended who will be tortured. Who is it? It's the one who does not forgive. In verse 34, we see, as long as you don't forgive, he will turn us over to be tortured. I know what you may be thinking. It's just what crossed my mind at first read. Time out, God. You're on the wrong side. It's supposed to be you and me against the one who has, who has brought opposition to me, the one who has offended me. They are the ones who've done something wrong. I haven't. And here's what Jesus wants us to catch this morning, I believe. Don't miss this. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, You and I have lost all right to withhold forgiveness to anyone. God says that if we withhold forgiveness, he will turn us over to be tortured. Why? Because he loves us. What? God's love for us is so great, he knows that when we turn to bitterness and and we have a a get-even spirit and grudges, they will torture our very soul. And he says, don't go there or I will allow you to be tortured by the things you are choosing. Resentment and bitterness, it will tear you up from the inside out. So, so how are we to forgive? If you like taking notes, there's just two thoughts I want you to jot down as we come to the end of our time. It's simply this. Okay, God wants us to forgive and to forgive freely. How do we do this? It's not complicated. We make it so complicated. We try to have all these steps and all these scenarios. It's quite simple. Not easy, but quite simple. First... According to Scripture, we are to identify what was taken from us. Specifically, what was stolen from you? What was taken from you? When you think about your hurt and your pain, think about your loss in terms of what has specifically been taken from you. Something has been robbed from you. If you say, you know, I've tried to forgive, but... I just can't seem to forgive. Most likely, you've tried to forgive an event and you've not gotten specific about what was taken from you. You haven't been specific about what was robbed from you. When a dad walks out on his wife and his kids, that's the event. And to forgive a father for doing that's like trying to forgive the event, but identify what has been stolen, what has been taken. When dad walks out on his wife and walks out on his kids... Love has been stolen. Security and provision has been stolen. Discipline in the home has been stolen. Future laughter and relationship has been stolen. When we are specific about what's been taken from us, then we can begin to identify what the debt actually is. Identify what's been taken to you. Even grieve that loss. Scripture says, blessed are those who mourn. It is right to grieve. It's painful and it hurts when somebody wrongs us. But we need to identify what is it that was taken from us. And second, Scripture calls us to choose to cancel the debt. To cancel the debt. 
It's not something that we feel like doing. It's a choice to say, God, I'm going to put your law, your truth, your word above my pattern of living, my tradition, what I feel like doing, and I'm going to let that be the standard of my life. Help me get unstuck, God. I choose to cancel the debt. I am deciding, Dad, Mom, ex, friend, boss, you don't owe me anything anymore. This is how you have hurt me. This is what was been stolen from me. But I'm choosing to cancel the debt today. And I no longer hold that note. You know what? They probably couldn't pay you back if they wanted to. They can't give you back your childhood. They can't give you back your innocence. And even if they could, they may not want to. So for you to not be tortured in your soul, we need to choose to cancel the debt. When we do that, there is peace, there is joy that will begin to enter our life. Not always does this happen instantly. And never is it automatically. It just like happens without thinking about it. But when we choose to cancel the debt, peace will enter into your life. You say, well, do I have to go tell them? Well, let me give some... Quick instruction. If someone who has hurt you, if they know nothing of the offense, you've been wounded, you've been hurt, it's been real and deep, but they don't know that they have done it, be careful thinking that you're going to go to them and forgive them for something they have no idea what they did. Is that really forgiveness? Or are you trying to drive the knife in and just get back at them somehow? If they don't know anything about it, you forgive them, cancel the debt, and you talk to God. If they know about it, and you can allow God to purify your heart and your motive, and you're going to them in love, and you're saying, hey, I forgive you, then then do that. But don't use the act of forgiveness as one last word to put a dagger in their back. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 helps us with this. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. If you're living in unforgiveness this morning, you are inflicting a lot of pain, not only on people around you who weren't tied to that source of a wound, but nobody is suffering from that unforgiveness as much as you are. It's tearing you up from the inside out. You may have it underneath a few layers of your exterior. But make no mistake, people know. They just get close enough to you in that area. They don't know the details, but they know something has been eating at you. This is what Jesus says. I'm going to come after you and lead you out of this unforgiveness because I want you to have freedom. As our musicians come, I want to invite you to pray with me this morning. If you would just bow your head and close your eyes. This is a message, I believe, that doesn't need a lot of fancy illustrations. If God is speaking to you this morning, you know exactly what the issue is that you've been hanging on to for days, for weeks, for months, for years, maybe even decades. I want to invite you to welcome the freedom into your life today. You can choose to just shut me out and shut God out in just a few minutes. This 
format will be through and you can go on carrying your wound. But today could be the day that your open wound could begin to heal. I want to encourage all of us, if you would just take your right hand with your head bowed and your eyes closed and and just put your right hand on your knee, right there on your lap, palm facing up. If you'll just humor me with this for a moment. And as your palm is facing up, your hand there on your knee with your right hand, I want you to imagine in your mind's eye, identify what's been stolen from you. Love, family, reputation, money. It's deep rejection. Your innocence has been stolen. In your mind's eye, I want you just to place that in your right hand, right there in the palm of your hand. And I want you to close your hands and make a fist as tight as you can. You just clench those things that have been stolen from you. You're hanging on to the note of the debt of what has been taken from you. Clench it as hard as you can right now. Just keep your hand on your lap, on your your right knee. And if you want God to bring freedom in your life today, I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. You just pray in your mind, and you don't have to get every word exactly like I say, but allow your heart to pray to God in the direction of how I'm praying. With your hand clenching those things that have been stolen, I invite you to pray this with me. Dear God, I recognize at Calvary at the cross, I lost my right to withhold forgiveness. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin. God, I've been harboring anger in my heart against blank. You tell God who it is who that person is, what that situation is, who that group of people are. God, I've been harboring anger and bitterness towards these people. God, I feel like I have been a victim. And they robbed me of blank. You you fill it in. You tell God. God, they've robbed me of my childhood, of recognition, of love, of family, of money, whatever it is. You tell him what they robbed you of. God, right now, As much as it hurts, I'm choosing to cancel their debt. Between you and me, God, they don't owe me anymore. God, please allow my painful memories to become reminders of the grace and forgiveness and healing in my own life. I don't want to inflict this pain on the people around me anymore. I don't want it to eat me from the inside out anymore. Help me break this cycle of a negative tradition or pattern or habits. Help me get unstuck. Right now, as you have prayed that prayer, you have canceled the debt. And I want you, as slow as you possibly can, to release your grip in your right hand and slowly begin to open your fingers. As you begin to open your hand, it's about 25% open. 
now about 50% open. That note of the debt of the things that have been stolen from you, it's like a hundred helium balloons are attached to that note and it's being lifted out of your hand right now. Your hand is now 85, 90, 100% open with your palm facing the sky. That note is lifting out of your hand. It's five feet in the air. It's rising higher. It's 10, it's 15, it's 20 feet in the air. And your mind's eye, picture this auditorium's roof opening up and the sky is ahead and and they lift that debt all the way up to the clouds you can see it it's raising higher and higher it's now going up into the clouds you can barely see it it's a tiny speck and now it's gone you cannot see it anymore It's not something that you feel. It's something that you choose to cancel the debt. I want to invite you to sing this song with us as we lift our voice to God in prayer, thanking Him for the grace and forgiveness He's given to us in our life that gives us the ability to forgive those who have hurt us. Let's sing this together.